John Dravecki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Last time we tried something somewhat pretentious, I hope it was still valuable, we endeavored to discuss the contributions to the notions of meaning and wisdom that were made by the advent of Christianity. In particular, we looked at Jesus of Nazareth and the exemplification right, of this participatory knowing in God's uh, agopic creativity, this forgiving of personhood to others, John's radical idea that God is in fact this agape, that there, that is actually what we've always been talking about when we've been talking about God. And then Paul's radical personalization of this and, and how the metanoia of his own transformation is seen by him as a powerful instance of this gnosis, agape, but how that also carried with it a potential dark side in which elements of, our, of his identity get projected onto cosmic history and the idea of inner conflict within history, within God, as being reflecting, reflected of and reflected in his own inner conflict between the old Saul and the new Paul, and how much this Gnosis participatory knowing is bound up with an exploration and an understanding of how our agency can be fractured, how we can be at war at ourselves, with ourselves, how we can suffer. And I want to take this up because the notion of how we can suffer how we can become at war with ourselves, how our agency can be undermined, and <clears throat> how much cosmic forces may be aligned with our suffering becomes a central idea amongst a group of people known, or at least called by their enemies, the Gnostics. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not this is a useful uh, theoretical construct. It's, there, there, were, there might have been some Gnosticism communities. It's more, it's more apt to think of Gnosticism as a style, a, a way of thinking, like existentialism or fundamentalism, right? It's, it's, you don't go to like a fundamentalist a, a church, you belong to a, a branch of Christianity that might be fundamentalist, right? It's, it's a way uh, of orienting yourself that is not uh, like belonging to a, a particular community or a, a particular political or socioeconomic group. Nevertheless, this sense, right, of inner conflict this sense of right, losing agency, the sense of the importance of Gnosis and Agape are all made central to this style, this movement. Now, 
I, before I talk about them in particular, I want to reverse how I want to present this. What I want to do is instead of trying to historically teach you about them first, I want to try and make clear to you from the inside, so to speak, what Gnosis is and how you are probably at some point seeking it or will be seeking it or have sought it in your life. And then once we get this existential understanding of what Gnosis is, then through that lens, I think it is more appropriate to try and understand the historical figures. The, the Gnostics are sort of, um, I don't know what to say, sexy, hot right now, a lot of conspiracy theories and Dan Brown kind of crap around all of this. And I think that's the wrong way. Uh, you don't really understand the Gnostics right, as a movement unless you understand what Gnosis is itself. This is going to turn out to be important because I think a way we can understand the Gnostics is they are the axial revolution within the axial revolution. They are the attempt to take the axial revolution to its culmination, to its rational culmination. And they are going to provide the undercurrent to Western culture's uh, understanding of its spiritual history and direction. So for a long time you won't hear me talk about the Gnostics because like I did when I was talking about the Buddha's enlightenment and we did a lot of cognitive science on higher states of consciousness. I want to try and do some significant cognitive science before we turn back to the history. So let's, let's, get, let's our work our way into what this is. We've already got some sense of what this is. We've had a lot of discussion of participatory knowing and perspectival knowing, and Gnosis has both of those elements in it, of transformative experience. We're going to try and draw this all together. But let's work our way into this. So we've talked about a worldview, and a worldview is when you have a way, you have this deeply integrated, dynamically coupled way of seeing yourself, your agency, and seeing the world as an arena. You have this bi-directional modeling. It is simultaneously modeling the world to you and modeling you to shape the world. This mutual conformity, this reciprocal revelation. Right? So that's a worldview. Now, this has happened to me, and I hope something similar has happened to you. Perhaps when you're reading uh, a book, uh, a novel, or I'll use an example. I'm reading the works of a particular philosopher. Um, let's say it's Spinoza, right? And I'll be reading, and I'll, you know, and Spinoza is a profound and deep thinker, and you spend a lot of time, and you're reading the arguments, and you're you're trying to understand, and you can come to follow the arguments. You can come to follow the inferences. You can even come to believe some of uh, Spinoza's conclusions. And so you have a lot of beliefs, and they're not, they don't even have to be incohate. They can be sort of uh, systematically related together. But then something else happens sometimes, not always, but it's happened to me multiple occasions. And it's often what I'm trying to convey above and beyond what I'm saying when I'm teaching other people. I'm reading Spinoza, and there's, it's like there's this change. I go from seeing what Spinoza is saying to seeing things the way Spinoza says. That's a, that, that, like, 
right? Spinoza goes from something I, I you know, oh, I believe what Spinoza's saying there and there and there and there about the world and about, right, about what it is to be a human being. I go from that to actually seeing the world Spinozistically. It's because, you know, Spinoza is now, to use a metaphor I've used before, is now the lens by which I'm both seeing the world and myself. I, I'm now living the world like as if, as if Spinoza was an adverb. I'm living the world uh, Spinozistically. I, my, I have the perspective of what it is like to see the world the way Spinoza did. And what it is like to participate in that worldview. You get this advent of the viability, the livability of a worldview. James talks about that. He talks about the difference, William James, the great psychologist and philosopher, he talks about the difference between believing things and it actually being a live option to you. So what happens there is, at least for some period of time, right, the agent-arena relationship, the perspectival and the participatory knowing, are now right, conformed to, at least it seems to me to be that way, to what Spinoza had, not just what right, Spinoza said, what, 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 who and what Spinoza was and what his world was to him has become available to me. Now that's important because that, that viability, that ability to enter into a particular agent arena configuration will help me to take the next step forward, right? So John Wright talks a lot about sensibility transcendence. And he talks about it, and it, this is based on the really important work of Iris Murdoch, and just an absolute gem of a book called The Sovereignty of the Good. I, if you read 10 books in your life, one of them should be The Sovereignty of the Good. Um, your life will be less if you have not read it. So Murdoch was trying to get beyond sort of the rules and reasons for morality to something much more important. She was trying to get to that viability of morality, the way in which we pay attention in such a way that our salience landscape and the agent arena relationship is transformed such that we do the good. But, Let's use Murdoch's particular example. There's a mother-in-law. She has, a, she has a, a son. The son is married to a woman, and she doesn't like this woman. The mother-in-law doesn't like the woman. It's obviously the mother-in-law to the daughter-in-law. She doesn't like this woman because she finds her coarse finds her loud, finds her kind of uncouth, and therefore beneath the sort of elegance and dignity of her son. 
And then, and, and it, think about agape and forgiving here. Think about agape and forgiving. But what happens here, at some point, Murdoch says, and it happens like an insight. It happens like when you come out of the nine-dot problem. The mother not realizes something. Now, it, and Murdoch is clear about this, it's not, a, it's not a, a normal insight. Like in a normal insight, we reframe how we're looking at something. I reframe how I look at the nine dots. But what's actually happening is the mother-in-law is having a bi-directional insight. She's not only reframing how she sees the world, she's reframing how she sees herself. And these are happening in a completely interfused manner. This is a participatory change. The agent, or both the agent and the arena side of the relationship are being co-changed together. So it's not a reframing of this or that. I often use this term, it's a transframing. It's not a reframing of a particular problem, it's a transformation of the whole framing process, both ends. Because what's happening is, the mother-in-law is seeing the daughter-in-law not as coarse, but as spontaneous. Not as uncouth, but sincere. Not as lacking in elegance, but as possessing authenticity. And then she's simultaneously, in a co-determining fashion, realizing that the way that she, the mother-in-law, has framed things habitually has been wrong. She's having what we've talked about before, that systematic insight. Not just an insight here and here, but there's a whole system of errors that she's transformation, that she's transforming. She's going through that kind of developmental transformation that we've talked about. Wright calls this sensibility transcendence. Because what's happening simultaneously is, right, the daughter-in-law can be something that she couldn't be before, and the mother-in-law is becoming somebody she couldn't become before. She couldn't be before. These two things are happening together. Her sensibility, her whole way of participating in a worldview, an agent-arena relationship, is being transformed. And so both things are going through transcendence. Do you see this? Here's herself, and here's right the daughter, the object of her attention, and this is going through self-transcendence, but so is this, and that's happening in a completely conjoined way. The mother, right, the mother-in-law is becoming what she couldn't be because of how she is, right, opening up what the daughter-in-law can be. And precisely because she's coming to right, see, have a radical insight into what the daughter-in-law could be, right, opening up that, she's opening up what she can be. It's again this process of participatory knowing, reciprocal revelation, right, and, and it's, you know, this mutually accelerating disclosure, this knowing by loving. It's a sensibility transcendence. So, notice what's happening here. There's a way, right, you can s see that I can, I can go through a process like this and enter into a worldview. And of course, that's what Christianity was offering, right? It was offering people that metanoia of how they can go through this radical transformation 
in this way, opening up the world, opening up themselves, etc. Now, why is that important? Because now I want you to think of the opposite. Your inability to enter into or make viable to yourself a new way of being. Now, in order to get to that, let me bring up again somebody we've spoken before, Harry Frankfurt. Remember, he's the person who talked about bullshit. Frankfurt also talks about how, a wonderful book, Reasons for Love and the Importance of What We Care About, how much our reasoning depends on what we love, what we care about, how we're bound into an agent arena relationship. Now, Frankfurt brings up an important notion. He brings up a notion he calls, I don't quite like this word, but to be fair to him, I can't think of a better word. He calls the unthinkable. So let me give you an example of this. So, the way to think of the unthinkable is, although you can make thoughts, images, propositions, run inferences, you can't actually make it viable. You can't go through the sensibility transcendence that would bring you into living that worldview. So, here's my example. My, uh, my oldest son currently lives with me, and this, this has been such a blessing for me. I get to live with him and spend time with him as, right, as he's building his career. Right? Now, I can think this thought. It would be great if I kicked Jason out. I can run this thought through my head. Because if I did, then the apartment would be clean. I'd have more money. I can draw. I can imagine what it would look like. I can run the thought. Right? I can draw, drive all the inferences. But what I can't do is actually make this a viable alternative for me. It's, in that way, the thought, it's unthinkable to me. My love for my son doesn't mean I can't run these thoughts, imagine these scenes, draw these inferences. I can do all of that. What I can't do is bring myself to live in that world. It's unthinkable to me. Perhaps a better way of thinking about it is it's, it's not viable to me. It's unlivable for me. Now that's a good thing, right? It, so do you see how I have a, a, a way, right, a sensibility transcendence with my son that means I, there's no effort on my part to treat him morally. And I'm not trying to be self-congratulatory. What I'm trying to say is, right, Doing that thing of kicking him out, which I think would ultimately be an immoral act, is not viable to me. So right now, this all sounds, this is all really great, but there's a way in which this can be twisted. I want you to now think of the negative of it. Right. What if you're stuck? You're stuck in a worldview you don't want to be in. You want to go over there, to that worldview. But you can't. You can't go through the sensibility transcendence that will make that worldview viable to you. Because 
you can run inferences in your head. You can run imagine scenes. You can state things to yourself. You can make all kinds of affirmations. Won't get you there. You're stuck. You can't go through that change. You experience a kind of existential inertia. People often enter therapy for exactly this reason. They, they can state who they want to be and what kind of world they want to be in. They can imagine it. They can make inferences of what it would be right, like if they were there. They can deeply want to be there. But they don't, they don't get there. They stay stuck. I want to stop getting in these horrible romantic relationships. I want to be in a relationship that is deep and profound. It would be so good. I can imagine myself there. I can see myself. But I can't get there. Every time I try to get there, I end up here again. Every time. Somehow, and I don't understand how, I don't understand how, the way I'm caring about things, the way I'm participating in myself and my world, is preventing me from making that way of life a viable option to me. I want to be there. Think about Paul and the old man and the new man. I want to be there. I want to be that person living there. But all my efforts to get there circle me back to here. I just can't get out of this existential inertia. I don't know how to bring about the sensibility transcendence that's going to make that way, that person, and that world viable to me. How do I get there? How do I get there? How do I stop suffering? So one thing that can happen to people is they can lose their agency, remember that's what suffering means, because they are, they're, 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 they're stuck like this. They're losing any sense of how to get to that other worldview, that other self. They're experiencing radical existential inertia. Jung used to often, talk, Carl Jung used to talk about the primary thing that people would have to get to and have to express and why they would come into therapy was precisely because they felt stuck. It might not even be that there are particular concrete problems in their life. It might be that everything's actually going kind of well. But they're stuck. They're stuck. They're thwarted. They, there, there is, there's a sense of they're not moving and they should be. And although they can talk and draw images and make inferences about how they should move and where they should move to, they don't have 
the participatory perspectival knowing, they don't know how to get there. They don't know how to engage in the sensibility transcendence. They don't know how to bring about the transframing. And often they enter into therapy, and therapy has an agapic element into it. The therapist is affording an agapic transformation. But in addition to being stuck because of existential inertia, there's another problem people face when they are seeking, when they need significant transformation. And this goes to the heart of one of the best books. I've already mentioned it before in this series. Um, in, I think, philosophy in the last uh, 20 years. This is L.A. Paul's work, A Transformative Experience. Because what L.A. Paul's work points to is a way in which these transformative experiences render us, the possibility of such transformative experiences, render us kind of stupefied because what they have us do is confront a deep kind of existential ignorance that is endemic to these transformative experiences. And it has to do again with this very perspectival and participatory knowing that I'm talking about. Okay, so she gives the example she first starts with a very trivial example, just to, to, to warm you up to the thinking. She, she says, somebody offers you to taste this fruit that you've never tasted before. And the problem is people have a very bimodal reaction. They either say, wow, this fruit is so unlike any fruit I've ever tasted. It's so wonderful. I love it. Or they say, this fruit is so unlike any fruit I've ever tasted. I hate it. It tastes like vomit. And, and the thing is, you don't know which reaction you're going to have until you bite the fruit. And she says, well, do you bite the fruit? And you may say, well, I don't know. The point is, right, you bite the fruit or not, you'll typically say, well, what does it matter? It's not a, there's nothing significantly at risk if I have the fruit. That's true. But what the fruit example points to is the following. There's a kind of knowing that is dependent on your state of being. This is your perspectival knowing. You don't know what it is like, because that's the core of perspective. You don't know what your salience landscape will be like when you eat this fruit until you have eaten the fruit. There's no way of knowing that ahead of time. You have to go through the experience to know what it is like to have the experience. You say, okay, I can sort of get that. So, right, this is kind of what she calls an epistemic transformation. But she says, some of the times what we're confronting is something deeper, where we're confronting a personal transformation, right? This is where what's, what's happening again is knowing not just by having a particular perspective, this is knowing by having the agent arena relationship radically transframed. You don't know what it's like to be that person in that world right? because you have to actually be changed and the world has to be changed in order for you to have that participatory knowing. So she talks about the fact that what she means by like a transformative experience 
is one in which you're going to undergo that change in perspectival knowing and that change in participatory knowing. So she gives a Gedanken experiment to bring that out first, a thought experiment. She says, imagine the following. Right? She said, your friends come to you and they reveal the secret. They give you just in, like, indubitable evidence that they can do the following. They convince you that they can absolutely do the following. They can turn you into a vampire. Do you do it? Do you, do you become a vampire? Now before you put this off as silly, the point of a, a philosophical thought experiment is to play with something free from your own life so you can get clear about it, what it means. After we've played with it, we will go back to our lives. But here's the issue. You can't make any inferences about this. Because you don't know what it's going to be like to be a vampire, and you don't know who you're going to be when you're a vampire. Because your preferences, your character, everything is going to change. And your salience landscaping is going to radically change. You don't know what it's going to be like. So here's what you face. I don't know what I'm going to lose if I become a vampire. I don't know what I'm going to lose. Once I go through this change, I will have lost a way of being. It will become unthinkable to me. I can't get back to it. But I don't know what I'm going to lose until I go through it. So, oh, well, then I shouldn't do it. Ah, but if I don't do it, I don't know what I'm missing. I don't know what I'm missing. There could be a way of being here that is amazing and wonderful. I don't know what I'm missing. And I'm caught. I equally don't know what I'm going to lose, and I don't know what I'm, going, what I'm missing. And I can't do any calculations. I don't know what my values are going to be. Are, are my values now the right set of values? Are my values then the right set of values? Is the kinds of experience that I'm having now, or the, like, there is no place above I can make the comparison. I can't reason my way through it. And now, unlike the fruit example, Everything is at risk. Both the agent and the arena are at risk. And you go, okay, so what? I get it. Who cares? I'm never going to be a vampire. That's not the point. The point is once you acknowledge the logic of the problem, this is what she now gets you to realize. You confront these in your life at multiple times. Here's an example so relevant to everything we've been talking about with agape. Should you have a kid? Should you have a child? Do you see how it's exactly the same? You don't know what you're missing if you don't have a child. Because you are going to, we talked about this, you're going to become a different person with a different salience landscape. And until you have a child, you don't know what it's like. So you don't know what you're missing. You also don't know what you're going to lose. All people will tell you, oh, blah, 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 blah. But until you go through it, you don't know. You're existentially ignorant. Here's another one. Should I enter into a romantic relationship with that person? You don't know. You don't know who you're going to be because if it's a real romantic relationship, it's going to change you. You don't know who you're going to be 
You don't know what your salience landscape is going to be until you're on the other side. You don't know what you're missing by not getting into the relationship, but you don't know what you're going to lose until when you get into it. So should you do it or not? We face irreversible change and yet we can't, there's no way to reason our way through it because on both sides of the transformation we are confronted by radical ignorance. We don't know what we're missing and we don't know what we'll be losing. We don't know if we should stay here. We don't know if we should go there. Now I've had the pleasure to talk to, to L.A. Paul Laurie about some of this and present a case to her, um, which I think she, she, there's some agreement uh, about this, uh, and uh, I look forward to, uh, we have some future work we're doing together. As I pointed out to Laurie that when, whenever we're going through any significant developmental change, like to use Paul's example, going from a child to an adult. The child doesn't know what they're going to lose when they lose their childhood innocence, when they become an adult. They don't know. But as an adult, right, but it, the child also doesn't know what it's going to miss, what it's missing if it doesn't become an adult. And you think, oh, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. Do you know how much people face difficulties precisely because they get transfixed by this. They, right, if I grow up, I'm gonna, I might lose stuff, but if I don't grow up, I don't know what I'm missing. Ah, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Like, if I choose this career, I lose all these wonderful potentialities. But should I just keep all my possibilities open? <gasps> Look at all my possibilities. But, but if I choose this, I'll lose. And, I, and some of those possibilities I don't even know. But if I don't ever choose, what am I missing? I'll never know because I've never actually gotten into any particular career. So we can be stupefied as we face the need for radical transformation. So people are not, they go into therapy not only because they're stuck, they don't know how to transform, they're also stupefied. They don't know if they should. Uh, I because I, 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 oh, I, I might, oh, what am I, what am I right? And, 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 and this is bound up with the aspect disguise that people get into when they're stuck. And it shows this stupefaction and the stuckness working together. Look, somebody comes in, they're doing therapeutic work with you, right? Uh, why are you here? I'm stuck. How are you stuck? Oh, well, I'm so stubborn. I'm like, I'm stubborn and I rigid and I, oh, oh, and I want, oh, and I need to get, I need to be more flexible. Oh, okay. And then you talk to them and let's talk about other stuff. Come back. And come. What do you like most about yourself? Oh, I'm persistent. I don't give up. And you see? The very thing they're trying to 
change is the very thing about themselves that they don't want to let go of, that they're most identified with. I'm stubborn. I won't change my mind. What do you like about yourself? I'm persistent. I don't give up. I don't change my mind. They talk about the same thing, one under a negative aspect and one under a positive aspect, and they don't realize it. They're stuck and they're stupefied. Now, when we're stuck and we're stupefied, when we're stuck, we can't imagine how to make an alternative worldview significant, how to make it viable. When we're stupefied, we can't imagine the alternative. We can't figure out how to rationally make the choice. So we get this, right, inertia and indecision. We're stuck and we're stupefied. And then we're trapped. We're existentially trapped. And then you can think about how that could mix, be mixed up with the stuff we talked about with the Buddha. The parasitic processing, the parasitic processing, the modal confusion. But we get stuck. Now, how do you get out? What do you do in therapy? Because therapy works. What do you do? How do you, like, how do you get people out of being existentially trapped? Well, let's, let's go back to it. Let's try and work our way through it. So, what do some people do when they're considering whether or not they want to have a child? Well, some people just throw themselves into the Darwinian flow and just, right? But some people are like, oh, should we have a child or not, right? What do some people do? Well, I've noticed many people doing this, and it's very interesting. They get a pet. They get a dog, typically. And then they do kind of bizarre behaviors with the dog. They have pictures taken with the dog, and they give the dog a bed and some toys, and right? And, right? and so they go, ooh, right? And what they're doing, right, is they're doing something that's right, kind of like having a child. Should I enter into a romantic relationship with this person? This is advice that was actually given to me when I was dating, and I, I see people do it. Go on a trip with them. Go on a trip with them. Live with them for seven days. It's kind of like living with them. It's kind of like being in a relationship with them. People say, well, well yeah, I, I sort of get that. Even the things like the being a vampire, how do people do that? Well, they play role-playing games. And you say, that's just fantasy. Okay, well, pay attention to the way this is evolving in our culture. So role-playing games have moved into live-action versions where you act out the role-playing, and then this has evolved into a, a Norwegian, a, like not Norwegian, a Scandinavian style, which is called Jeep form. And in Jeep form, what you're doing is you're given a scenario to act out, and the person that plays the role of like the, the, the dungeon master is like a movie director. They will tell you to cut scenes or switch roles. And here's the whole point of Jeep form. You, you're trying to enact 
emotionally difficult situations. Why would you want to do that? What, what people are seeking in Jeep form is they're seeking a phenomena called bleed. I want, I, I'm going to do this role-playing, and I'm getting, I, this person out here is a director, and they're doing stuff to mess up with my, my transframing and my role-playing, because what I'm trying to do is get so that the line between my real life and what I'm doing in this psychodrama bleeds. So that the line between the game and reality bleed into each other, blurs. I'm looking for bleed so that I can play, seriously play with the possibilities. Do you see what's happening here? People engage, and we have to learn how to take this word seriously again, they engage in play. The whole point about play, right, the whole point about play is it puts you in between. Here's the world you're in, and here's the world you want to be in, and then there's this liminal zone where we can play. It's no coincidence that as organisms become more intelligent, more, need, 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 more in need of right, developmental transformations, they also become much more playful. They need more and more play. And play is not a frivolous thing. One of the disasters of our culture is we think of play as only about fun. We've trivialized it. Now, play can be fun, but I don't think fun is what people are after in Jeep form. It's not really fun that people are after when they adopt a dog and treat it like a child. See, the word play doesn't have to be about fun because you can play music and it could be heartbreaking music. It could be Mahler that you're playing. In Tai Chi, you don't do Tai Chi, you play Tai Chi. And it's not about having fun, it's about a deep engagement with processes of transformation. So the way to think about this is what are people doing in all these instances? They're, they're confronting the possibility of a transformative experience and so what they do is they have an inactive analogy. This isn't an analogy of word or thought because that's not going to work because this is about perspectival and participatory change. This is an analogy you enact. You go through the actions. Now this takes a lot of skill to create an inactive analogy. It creates a lot of skill. I got to get it right. Right? If I'm doing the Jeep form, I got to get it right. And that's what the director's there to help. Might make, do role reversal, suddenly give me an object I got to use, right? The therapist will suddenly get you to talk to that, pretend that that empty chair, that your mother's there and start talking, right? And you got to get it right. Because the inactive analogy has to be similar enough to the world and the person you're trying to become in that world, it has to be similar enough that you can feel it. You can start to get the perspectival and participatory knowing, but it's still similar enough to this world that you can pull out if you need to. 
And you got to get, it's, it's this delicate balancing act. It has to be relevantly similar to the world I want to go to, but still relevantly similar to the world that I'm in. Because I want to put myself into a place where I can play where the t with the two so that I can compare them together. This, tra this creates, this creates, it demands, I should say, it demands tremendous skill. This ability to come up with a apt, there's, there's a beauty and an elegance here, an apt metaphor that you can actually play within, that you can participate in, so that you can, ah, that's what it would be like. Ah, but I, but I, I still know who I am right now, and I can feel and see and sense the two together. That's what you're doing in therapy. One of the things we need to do, as you can probably see, or the, uh, uh, an implication of what I'm saying as part of addressing the meaning crisis, is we have to recover play. And I, I hope you now understand what I'm going to say, and that it is not meant to be disrespectful. One of the important things that religion was, was play. That's what ritual properly understood is. People are playing serious playing in order to try and put themselves into a liminal place, a place between two worlds, the normal world and the sacred world they want to dwell within. They're playing there in order to see how and whether they should go through the change in world and self that the religion is demanding and affording. Now notice, in order to make a worldview viable to me, I have to go through this self-world sensibility transcendence. But you've seen that before. You've seen that before. This is anagoge. Anagoge is precisely to set things up so that as this, as this is transcending, as, it's as I'm coming more into contact with what's real, getting below the illusion, like Paul just seeing things in mirror or just shadows on the cave for player, as that opens up, that affords me transforming. Right? So sensibility transcendence is just, I think, anagage. And sensibility transcendence is how I enter into a worldview. So what I need is I need not only an enactive analogy, I need a way of enacting anagoge. And that is also what religious ritual used to do for us. Religious ritual was a way of playing with inactive analogies so that I can compare, so I can overcome the ignorance. I can, right, I can, see isn't even the right verb, I can see, be, these two worlds, these two ways of being, these two persons within those worlds. But ritual also was enacted anagoge. It was giving you the skills for knowing how to get unstuck. How 
to go through sensibility transcendence, how to make that world, world viable. So in therapy, you're often doing this. You're giving people an active analogy. Okay, so you're having, like, it's coming clear that you're stuck, and it has to do with how you're related to your mom. Okay, so pretend that your mom is in that chair. I know she's dead now. Forget that. This isn't literal, but it's not fun. It's not frivolous. It's serious play. Pretend your mom is there. Enact that. Get the analogy. Talk to her. And then, here, I'm, I'm a therapist. I'll give you ways of reframing her and reframing yourself. I'll help you to engage in anagogy so you'll start to know how to go through the sensibility transcendence. And that's how you get out of being existentially trapped. You have this ritual behavior. Again, like when I'm doing Tai Chi, like Tai Chi, right? Th these are all, this is an active analogy. I'm doing these motions. This is how, like if somebody's, this is how, single whip, this is helping me actually enact what it would be like to be in a fight situation. But it's also anagogic, right? The whole point about doing Tai Chi is it's also radically transforming. That's one way of understanding Chi. Don't understand it as magical energy. Understand it instead as it's a way of radically transforming how I'm experiencing myself in the world. In Tai Chi, we talk about the two eyes. I, I have an eye that's looking out at the world and looking at myself, and what I'm doing is I'm radically transforming them. I'm trying to bring about the know-how of anagoge, and I'm enacting the analogy of fighting. It's a ritual. I'm seriously playing with an inactive analogy and enacting anagogic transformation. That's why it's a path of wisdom and a martial art at the same time. You see therapy, real martial arts, martial arts that aren't just kick and punch, but real martial arts, we're all doing this. That's why so many people in the meaning crisis are attracted to martial arts, are attracted to things like Jeep form. They're hungry. That's why they go into therapy. They are hungry. They are hungry for ways of dealing with being existentially trapped. So, people are looking for ways of transforming not just their cognition, their beliefs, but perspectively transforming their consciousness in a participatory fashion, transforming their character. What they identify with and how they, that identification enables them to inhabit an agent arena relationship. We're close to telling you what Gnosis is. So in Gnosis, what I'm trying to do is bring about an altered state of consciousness. Because that is going to put me into the flow state got the possibility of giving me a higher state of consciousness, a mystical experience that's transformative. And then what I'm doing is I'm setting this within a ritual context. Where I'm, I'm doing an active analogy and I'm doing an active anagoge. 
I'm doing serious play. And I have the flexibility, the cognitive flexibility. This is how the psychedelics can be enmeshed. Why psychedelics can improve therapy so much. Because the psychedelics give you the cognitive flexibility and the flow state and the possibility even of a higher state of consciousness that then right, empowers this process to get you free from existential entrapment. This is why you give people right, psychedelics and you put them through the therapeutic process and you can get them free from post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, so now... What's Gnosis? This is Gnosis. Gnosis is to have a set of psychotechnologies that create a ritual context, like Jeep form, like martial arts, like therapy, that allows us to overcome being existentially stuck, existentially stupefied, and that is being powered by an altered state of consciousness that's induced by chanting, sleep deprivation, psychedelics. And what this does, what Gnosis does, is it frees me from being existentially trapped. It's this combination, this integration of psychotechnologies that activate and transform perspectival and participatory knowing and give us a sense of a greater reality that we want to live within and thereby liberates us from being existentially trapped and heals us from our fractured suffering, our fragmented agency, our broken world. That's Gnosis. So what I want to look at next time is how Gnosis was taken up within a movement within the uh, same time period as early Christianity. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Mm -hmm.